Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. One of the outstanding visionary inventors of 20th century North America, Buckminster Fuller, or Bucky, as he was affectionately known to friends and colleagues, epitomizes the enormous optimism and belief in the future of the post-war modern era. Perhaps most famous for his invention of the geodesic dome, it was his ability to connect design to ecology to world systems thinking which first caught my attention. In particular, an audacious effort in the 1960s to put into practice what he called the world game, to make the world work for 100% of humanity without ecological offence or the disadvantage of anyone. Our guest today, experimental philosopher, artist and writer, Jonathan Keats, is unusually well qualified to speak to Buckminster Fuller's legacy as a pioneer of world-changing ideas. Science fiction writer Bruce Sterling has described Jonathan as, quote, probably much more like Buckminster Fuller than any living figure. Fortunately for us, among his many projects, Jonathan found time to publish a book in 2016 on the life and legacy of Buckminster Fuller. This brilliant work serves as a springboard for a truly enlightening conversation on thought experiments, the need for curious amateurs, and what visions are going to lead us to our futures. I think that we all need to be together in this process of asking questions, and that there is courage to be found through the awareness that others are doing so as well, and that there is fortitude in the community to which you belong as one of the many who are actively asking questions and asking questions in a way that what answers you receive further inform the questions that that you can ask. This is Imperfect Utopias or BUST Global Governance Futures. Jonathan Keats is an American conceptual artist and experimental philosopher known for creating large-scale thought experiments, which in his own words, dare us to enter an absurd space in which nothing is as it seems, nothing is as we assume. He is also the author of various books, including You Belong to the Universe, Buckminster Fuller and the Future. We spoke with him in June 2022. So yeah, so Jonathan, uh, you're really someone who I'd say defies inside the box categories. So I've seen you described as an experimental philosopher, as a conceptual artist, but also as a poet of ideas, a multimedia philosopher prophet. So perhaps we can begin by asking you to help help us capture, well, who, who are you and, and what do you do? I try my best not to be able to answer that question for myself, because I think the moment that I have an answer, then whatever I do is constrained by the idea that I have used or the title that I've given myself. It seems to me that what is interesting is not so much who or what I am as what I get to do. And 
my motivation from the outset really has been, I've just been curious about everything for as long as I can remember and wanted to play with others in the broadest sense of the word where the, where the play is happening out in the world and is in pursuit of curiosity and through curiosity, a way in which to have some sort of understanding of what's happening around us and never really to have an answer because I'm not sure that we ever as a society as a species that we're capable of real answers, but to be engaged in actively questioning constantly. And so I studied philosophy in school because that seemed to me to be the best place to pursue curiosity in some general sense. And it turned out I was dead wrong. Not that there was anything wrong with what was happening in academia, but that it was far from the open-ended field of inquiry that I had thought it might turn out to be. It was, as I'm sure you know, very much delimited by a set of concerns and methodologies operating in a jargon that is very powerful, but also very limiting in terms of who gets to speak and what can be talked about. So I think that at some point in the course of study, where a lot of this study was at its most interesting when I was studying Ludwig Wittgenstein, who really didn't believe in boundaries and wrote as he saw fit, but where most of it was in the analytic tradition and very much bound in logic and very rigorous, but also quite narrow. I think that at some point I remembered back when I was a child, maybe six years old, and I had my father was a stockbroker and I had no idea what that meant. I knew that he somehow bought and sold something. I still don't really understand. He's no longer a stockbroker, but I still don't understand what stockbrokers do, the stock market, the economy in general. And I'm still trying to understand that. But at the time, what I tried to do as a way of understanding it was to sell and to sell something where it wasn't about what I was selling, but it was about the transaction itself. So I sold rocks and I sold ordinary rocks as ordinary as can be set up on a, on a table in the front yard, other rocks all around me, exactly the same. And it was, I think while I didn't have the terminology at the time, and I'm sure that I wasn't considering this to be some sort of a philosophical or intellectual pursuit, I think that it was a form of thought experiment. It was a way in which to operate outside of the world as we know it, 
to operate within the context of an alternative reality and a reality that in some ways simplified or removed a lot of the complications that operate within our world ordinarily in order to simply figure out what my father did every day, what a transaction is. And so coming through philosophy at some stage, I think that I realized that that mode of inquiry where I never came up with an answer, but where it actually was a very good way in which to immerse myself in the question and where I could immerse myself in the question, not on my own and not in a way that was attempting to persuade others, but where it was with others in the inquiry itself. And the inquiry was potentially generative of deeper questions. So I don't know that that was specifically what led me into the befuddling world of activity with multiple titles, all of which are tenuous, that defines my life today. But I think that as a general pattern, what I've found is that I've gone in for a rigorous training, found that the rigorous training was valuable as far as it went, and then tried to remove from the world of academia what seemed to me to be valuable or useful and to operate on my own terms. And I think that I still, to a large extent, am engaged in thought experiments, attempting to simply asking what if, and then letting it play out and really building as much as possible a world in which ideas can play out that might be completely counterintuitive or might stand outside of the world as we know it, but ideally that can inform us, not just me personally, but can inform all of us, and we can inform all of us, because I think that philosophy is too important to be confined to academia or to belong to philosophers. I think that we all need to be thinking deeply and we all need to be thinking collectively if we're to have a truly democratic society that is capable of contending with the vast and very problems that we face today. And certainly the, the sort of the narrow boundaries of analytical philosophy has been a theme in earlier conversations we've had with uh, Dave Snowden comes to mind, who might also describe himself, I don't know, as an experimental philosopher. It's a possibility. But this need for crossing disciplines, for crossing over bodies of knowledge. Uh, and I suppose as you as you've as as you've um made clear if there's sort of a, a thread which ties together your work across say art and philosophy it's that question what if uh, i'd be curious to ask in terms of sort of lineage where does experimental philosophy sort of depart from the older efforts of philosophy as conventionally understood i believe that experimental philosophy actually is more a reunion rather than a departure. I, I cribbed the term, wasn't my own idea, 
it was a term that in 16th and 17th centuries, I think even up through the 18th century, occasionally was used interchangeably with natural philosopher, which before the term scientist was popularized, was what people did and what they called themselves when they undertook the sort of inquiry that today is referred to as science, but where it was far more pluralistic. If you think about the fact that many of the greatest physicists and chemists were alchemists, and it wasn't they were alchemists on the side for the sake of making a little bit of cash. It was much more complicated than that. I think that while I am not espousing a belief in alchemy here, and I'm agnostic on it as I am on all matters, it is entirely possible that the stars have something to tell us or that there is one God or that there are many or that we're all alone. I don't know. But I do believe very strongly that the scientific method, like methods in philosophy, that these are epistemologically very powerful. But if we drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak, if we take the paradigm too much as the way in which the world works versus a way in which to look at the world, I think that we lose so much of the reality that to me is is so essential to be engaged in and to be considering through and through. So in other words, from my standpoint, what natural philosophers did, while there were myriad problems and many ways in which natural philosophers and experimental philosophers were were, were stuck in their time, and also all of the elitism that there were very few and that it really was not very much, with the exception of somebody like Michael Faraday, perhaps, it was not very much a matter of truly engaging with a public at large. Nevertheless, there is a model there that I find inspiration in. And as much as natural philosophy is a term of art that I appreciate. It seemed to me that the great coincidence that thought experiments seem to evoke a large part of what I do and the fact that, that natural philosophers were also called experimental philosophers, that I would just take that serendipity and I would appropriate and completely misuse this term in the present day. And it also is a... I guess, a way in which to remind myself of my own limitations. That is to say that it is very clear when we look at natural or experimental philosophers from the past, when we look at the work of somebody like Robert Flood, who was obsessed with building perpetual motion machines, which was when I wasn't selling rocks on the street corner, I was trying to make perpetual motion machines all day long. So there's an affinity there as well. But I think that by calling myself an experimental philosopher, it's a good reminder to me to be humble and to recognize that 
all the ways in which it is obvious that flood was misguided or deluded are ways in which I might be misguided or deluded as well. And yet all the ways in which we can appreciate his thinking and the patterns that he recognized in the world around him and the ways in which he creatively put those patterns together, both at the level of trying to build technologies that were impossible, perpetual motion machine, and in terms of trying to understand the natural world, that there's something that's really inspiring to me about that. That's really interesting, Jonathan. And I think that going back to one of the things you mentioned earlier about curiosity, asking questions that have answers seems like a logical, almost human need, you know, based be that on our education system, which is kind of predicated on the Victorian ideas of knowing things, but also just in a biological sense of, is this plant that I eat going to kill me? Yes or no? You know, so asking questions that have answers seems logical, but I believe you're advocating asking questions that might beget many more questions and no answers. And I just wondered if you could expand a bit more on why that is so important um, in a world where it seems so logical that questions should always have answers. Another strand, I think, in addition to being the son of a stockbroker doing something that was utterly mysterious to me, Another strand for me was that my heritage is Jewish and Talmud has always been as much interested in the questions than in the answers. I would argue more so that it is, in a sense, a dialectical method where answers are only a means by which to ask deeper questions. So I think that humankind has a long history because Talmud goes back a long way and it certainly didn't arise out of nothing, that there is a very long history for our species of asking questions as a way in which to be more present in the world and that that constitutes a way of knowing that is not factually based, but is based in practice. That is to say that the practice of investigation and all the ways in which we are touching upon, and literally, in my case, touching as much of the world as I possibly can, that that is, in its own right, a way of knowing. And looking more broadly than just our own species, at the ways in which other species live in the world, I don't think And I'm not a tree, but I don't think that trees ever come up with answers or that trees know in the sense that we believe as a species that we know. I think that a tree is constantly sensing environment and responding to it through some means of processing what is sensed 
and both in the moment and through evolutionary time is changing as a result of that in a way that allows for subsistence in an ever-changing environment. So that contingent way of knowing is, I think, one that perhaps in human terms we might describe as an act of questioning rather than an act of hoarding facts, building libraries, and then immersing ourselves with that book knowledge in a way that we lose any sort of connection to the sources of it. And of course, oral traditions very much are engaged in that sort of act of knowing even today. And to me, one of the ideas that I've recently been pursuing, one of the ways which I've been asking, what if, what if the Anthropocene began not with the atomic bomb test, as some have posited, not with the invention of agriculture, but with the invention of writing? What if, in fact, when we were able to take memory offline and therefore no longer needed to remember and no longer had the capacity to act through the activity of memory in relation to what we sense around us in some sort of a a direct and constant feedback loop? What if that is where and when we became detached and alienated ourselves from the natural world, so to speak, or more generally the world around us. So that to me, that oral tradition, Talmud, which certainly comes out of an oral tradition as, as everything ultimately really does, since none of us were literate at some point in, in our long history. To me, all of this is suggestive of the fact that we're in a very particular situation right now where we think of knowledge in the way that we do. And that actually that is strange as opposed to the way in which I think of being in the world. And that comes naturally to me. In researching for this interview, I came across uh, Goethe's essay, Experiments as Mediator. And I mean, it, 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 these sorts of interventions, which, you know, uh, this, this is hundreds of years ago. I mean, they do switch on sort of different light bulbs. They do make you, they do make you think. And as you suggest, it's uh, you know, some of the most important questions are, uh, I suppose, they, they defy easy answers. Uh, and um, it may be that one has to really explore the question with a view to asking even better or more challenging, exciting questions, which also actually resonates with the, another guest we've had on the podcast by Akomalafe, who indeed says that we should really be engaged in bending questions into rites of passage. I think we also don't necessarily know what question we're asking when we ask a question and when we take it seriously and pursue understanding through that question. 
and Goethe is a great example of this. So the epic battle between Goethe and Newton was one in which Goethe claimed effectively, simplifying here, the color wheel to be an accurate representation of reality, whereas Newton claimed the light spectrum to be. And they were both right, but they were talking, each one of them, about something different. And what Goethe was talking about, he didn't understand that he was exploring the domain that we now would think of as perceptual biology, effectively inventing that domain through his rigorous experimentation on himself and on others, and through this epic argument with Newton, in which he became more and more entrenched in a position that was less and less tenable in terms of of what he thought he was addressing, even though he had Beethoven on his side, apparently, that he was actually doing something, discovering something that in a sense, at least, even if it is not as universal and therefore doesn't have within the hierarchy of the time the same status, seems to me that it's as important. And I think this is a, a good moment perhaps to pivot to a, to a 20th century figure of some note who uh, indeed, I think, embodied this philosophy or experimental philosophy and place questions such as what is it that we value in life? What kind of future do we want? At the heart of his own approach to what he called uh, anticipatory design science. So you've written a book, Jonathan, about Buckminster Fuller, and I've read that book. It's a fantastic work. I, I now recommend it to, to everyone. Um, and Buckminster Fuller is perhaps surprisingly not that well known in the UK, but was a major inventor, designer, critic, visionary of, of the last century in the US who inspired millions through his, I suppose we could say, preaching the gospel of design. Um, so perhaps we could expand a bit on, well, you could expand a bit on why, why did you choose to write a book about Buckminster Fuller? Well, Buckminster Fuller is not so well known anywhere, it turns out, to a slightly greater extent than in the UK and the US, perhaps in Germany. But even there, I found that it is generational. And I'm at the tail end of people who have any idea who he was. And I actually remember when I was a child, I was up in Lake Tahoe and he was giving one of his workshops. And I remember my parents telling me about this. It was a geodesic dome that was being built outside of some resort and telling me about it and just being in awe of this structure. And I continually came back over the years to Fuller, not deliberately, but because it seems that Fuller kept coming to me. So many years after that, Stanford University acquired his archive 
And at the time, I was a primarily a journalist and an editor at San Francisco Magazine. And so I went down to the archive and I wrote about it and spent some time investigating what he was thinking and found what I later found to an even greater extent to be the case, which is ultimately what led me to write a book about him, which is that he was a total and complete crackpot on some level, but also his thinking was truly prophetic on another. And what was prophetic about his thinking, I believe, was not really prophetic in his own time, or at least not pertinent to his own time to a very great extent, but that in our time, it seems like there is a lot to be learned from his ideas. He was generally interested in problems that certainly were present in his day, but that seemed to have grown even greater. And environmental crisis is the most obvious of these. He also looked in terms of solutions to technologies that were, even if they were possible, they were highly implausible in his time, but that are really relatively reachable today. And there was, on the one side, there was the fact that his description of what he did, which was actually even more of a tongue twister than what you said a moment ago, it was comprehensive anticipatory design science. And the word comprehensive was really important, I believe, that it was this act of pattern recognition at the largest scale and started out when he was trying to compile a list of all the world's resources for Fortune magazine. It actually even comes from before that when he was in the Navy, at least according to his personal myth, and this way in which trying to understand logistically where, where resources were and where they needed to be, that that was that was for him a concern that he then took to ever greater extremes beyond just trying to figure out where all the copper is and where, where the factories are that need it to try to think at a truly comprehensive level. And to me, that seems always to be relevant and always to be important because it leads to a a view that is not mired in the prejudices or in the in the assumptions that might be present here but not there while at the same time it made me and still makes me really uncomfortable for the fact that it is inherently technocratic in terms of how he went about this practice. So there is 
that practice as a whole that seemed to me and still seems to me to be one that becomes all the more important as we become more siloed and also as a world becomes more complicated and as the moving pieces become more isolated from each other in terms of how we're thinking about them and yet more correlated in terms of what actually is happening. And then there are the specific instances of the problems that he was identifying and the approaches he was taking that generally speaking, his acolytes took according to the line of reasoning and the instantiation that he appreciated or that he promoted because he had a patent on the geodesic dome, a geodesic dome was always somehow the solution to any problem. And that's a real problem. So to me, it seemed and still seems that there is great value in taking these ideas that he had specifically without any allegiance to him, let alone all of his expired patents and thinking about them in the present and also taking that larger initiative that was his life and thinking in those terms while also recognizing the limitations and those limitations being the ways in which he, he, he believed too much in his own way of thinking. And he also was, I think, ultimately too much of an engineer in terms of how he applied this field that he effectively invented, this comprehensive anticipatory design science. Yeah, I, <laughs> something that struck me reading your book and reading into but Mr. Fuller's own work is that humility was not uh, sort of a hallmark uh, of, of the way he was in the world. He had this incredible self-belief, uh, you know, the sheer ambition of what he was attempting to achieve time and again, sort of, uh, which uh, I guess you could sum up as making the human race as successful as, as possible for all of eternity, basically. I mean, it's almost sort of... Making the world work for all of humanity or 100% of humanity was often the way in which he phrased it. And I absolutely... So that that is a third strand of this. To me, that is really admirable. And that is very much in an American tradition going back to his relative Margaret Fuller and going back to a certain sort of American exceptionalism that becomes problematic if you go too deeply into it, but also that in terms of vocation and in terms of dedication and in terms of values underlying those, I think all of that seems to me to be absolutely not only legitimate, but really important. The values, trying to make the world work for all of humanity, those values seem absolutely right to me. And the willingness, the dedication, the insistence on dedicating an entire life to 
achieving that seems also to me to be admirable and extraordinarily rare. There are very few instances of that. And part of where, while I don't claim to actually achieve anything in life, part of what motivates me is very much aligned with that and is to some extent inspired by it. He had a real ambivalence. Buckminster Fuller referred to himself as guinea pig B. And he created the Dymaxian chronophile. Everything that he created always was Dymaxian in one way or another. It was a branding. The terminology came about, I think, in the 1930s for a house that he was trying to sell at the Marshall Fields department store. And the, the uh, PR flack came up with this after listening to Fuller go on and on for hours on end using the words dynamic maximum. And some say ion, others say uh, motion. And there are other, other ideas about what that third word was, but everything became Damaxian after that, including this chronophile, which became apparently the largest archive in the world amassed for anybody ever. And so you can see that as being the height of arrogance and of hubris. And the fact that at one point when he was asked about the value of it, or when he was negotiating, I believe, with Southern Illinois University over who, who owned it and what it was worth, he said that it should be valued at the price of gold. So not exactly modest. Yet the reason why he built this and he collected everything, including a lot of overdue library notices, was because he thought that he was every man and that by taking his life and by having this repository, that it was a way in which to be able to think about how anybody might live in the 20th century. And I really appreciate that ambivalence for all the folly. And I think that one of the great faults is that Fuller had seemingly no sense of irony and not a lot of sense of self-awareness, certainly where a sense of humor can go a long way. So that was lacking. And yet the ambivalence inherent in the Dymaxian chronophile and in most everything that he did, which always involved ambitions that were well beyond what could ever be achieved in any life and a certitude about the details of some patent that was going to solve everything. I think that as long as you don't take yourself too seriously, and he did, I think that there is a lot of value in that. So we can today do a lot of the work that Fuller set out for himself without being mired in or burdened by the particulars of his personality or his time. Yeah, and I, I just want to to uh, bring into the conversation his world game, which was kind of this, this incredible subversion of war games 
of the era uh, where he really thought through, you know, how would we make the world work for 100% of humanity? And he actually elaborated this, this uh, Dimaxion map, air ocean map, which undermined sort of the, the state sovereign territorial boundaries by identifying the most efficient use of planetary supplies and demands. And it's an incredible pedagogical tool. Indeed, it's one that I use in my own lectures when I when I open up the topic of global governance versus international relations. So it's actually really sort of grounded and applied and still, I think, relevant, even if for many utopian. I think that there is great relevance to the map projection that is in many ways underlying the world game. And there is also potential in the world game as a concept. And much of this was squandered in Fuller's lifetime. And that to me is an opportunity. The, the map in its initial form was published during World War II in, I believe, in Life magazine. And partly it was a way in which to look at the world in terms of the actual landmass. In other words, challenging the Mercator projection, which has been denigrated all around for reasons that are at least in my mind, totally inappropriate because of the fact that it actually was extremely useful for navigation, which is what it was made to allow for, for navigation at sea. And yet Fuller had a point that it was being misused and that for purposes of understanding relationships between different peoples and thinking about borders and in general, trying to understand what was happening in the war, that it was, first of all, helpful to have another projection and any other projection would have, I think, been a good thing. And there were many others, by the way. It was not like he was the first to come up with a projection other than Mercator's, but to publish another projection in Life magazine. And then the way in which he proposed that you could basically turn it into a jigsaw puzzle you could cut it out and you can move the pieces around. You can understand relationships. That to me was a great way in which to encourage people to interact more with the world map and to understand more about what was happening in the world. So then I think the next stage of it that really to me seems brilliant was to take what you could almost say was a pun war game, world game, and war games, which go back millennia, were increasingly used during the Cold War, which is the period where Fuller started to think about the world game in which everyone must, everyone must win. So what would happen if you were to take the practice of war gaming where you have often a red and a blue side where people from a given government or a given military are playing out scenarios and they're doing so through this sort of role play 
where one side is enacting what that military might do and another side with people from the same military are role-playing how the opposition might act in response in order then to be able to anticipate how that might happen on the battlefield and to develop new and better strategies. So Fuller thought, why not take this and have everyone attempting on the basis of having different dossiers coming from different places in terms of the roles they play? Why not try to have the end goal not be victory of one side over another, but an allocation of resources that is fair to all? And why not do this in a way that would involve everybody? So that was, I think, brilliant. But inevitably, it ended up where Fuller spoke for everyone because it only ever played out in contexts that were small enough that there were maybe a dozen or two dozen people in the room as opposed to the tens or hundreds of thousands and where somehow, strangely, they always realized that it was a world energy grid that was going to solve everything. And I have nothing against a world energy grid per se, but the fact that the world game always ended with the same solution in spite of the fact that different people were playing the game doesn't seem to me to gain, to give greater confidence in that solution, but to give less confidence in how the methodology was played out. So that to me seems like it was a problem. And then it became even more problematic because Fuller grew frustrated and then ultimately thought that it could happen. The world game could be played out in a computer after all, war games were being played out in that way. And effectively, the computer would be a silicon version of his own brain because he came to believe that only he could really play the world game. And so total contradiction with the values that he set out with. And I think that we can today look to those values and look to that premise and we can potentially resurrect it on our own terms. And I think that any sort of playing out of possibilities where we take on roles that may not be the roles that we have on an everyday basis, that can be really powerful. And in a sense, I think I've come to realize that that is how I have undertaken thought experiments. And it isn't really the teleology doesn't really work out as much as it might be nice to say that it does. I didn't know about the world game when I started to do what I do today in the sense of the thought experiment as a way in which to posit an alternative reality. But I find that there are these interesting confluences and I learn all the time from finding them. And so I think that brings us to a, a, a great, I mean, you've mentioned it, your project of look, taking experimental philosophy and trying to conceive of new forms of governance. And I guess you know, our podcast is Global Governance Futures. We're really interested in what new governance can look like. So 
what have you learned through your work so far? And what do you, what would you hope the future of governance looks like? Well, I started out by, by listening to people saying that democracy isn't working. Not that I was exactly in disagreement over that. And that politicians are the problem, or at least they're a major source of what is problematic, that everything ranging from gridlock to corruption starts out with politicians who are bad actors or whose whose values are not aligned with the people they are supposed to represent or whose motivations are not aligned sufficiently. So I ask, what if? What if we were to engineer the politicians out of the system? What would that look like? And this thought experiment has a long and tortuous history to it. So I started to investigate those ideas at Arizona State University when I had a short residency. And I was interested in what government might look like without politicians. And I thought that perhaps we could replace politicians with random number generators. Politicians effectively are black boxes in the sense that we elect them, but we don't control the decisions they make in office. And that is by design. And I think that it is a very wise idea not to have direct democracy because of the risk of tyranny of the masses. And yet politicians very often, as I said a moment ago, do not act in a way that reflects what the populace really wants because they have ulterior motives or they have they have other interests. So if we were to take these black boxes and we were to instead have random number generators where the random number generator is weighted to a probability of a yes or a no vote that would align with the probability that you would find by polling the constituency, you would be able to have at a very simple level, at least representative democracy without politicians. So take the simplest case of change or stasis. Is the system fit or is the system working for the people it's supposed to work for? In other words, as I say in the US sometimes, or as I used to say, are you better off now than you were four years ago? So what you could do is you could have a system where you weight the probability of a yes or a no vote, and then you let the system run. And there are many ways in which that could happen, but effectively what you could do is you could mutate the law in a way that the mutation rate could be calibrated by the satisfaction or dissatisfaction of the populace. But even if that were not the case, you could simply as a matter of whether laws are passed or not, 
that there would be a greater probability of new laws being passed where the people were less satisfied with the status quo or the opposite. So I started to work on that in more tangible terms, or at least in more practical terms at San Jose State University, where I've co-founded the Future Democracies Laboratory. That is a lab that will, over the long term, be able to experiment with ideas such as the platform that we've developed which becomes not only a provocation, but also an experimental platform because effectively what we're able to do is by having these random number generators in software, we can reconfigure the logic by which a law passes through the system. We can change the number of legislators. We can change the relationship between an executive and a legislative branch here in the US. So we can rapidly prototype different possibilities And that's one part of the research that's come out of this. While the provocation still remains as it has been, this provocation of asking what politicians do and what what politics is ultimately, because politicians have always been, or for a very long time, have been central to the political process. So another dimension of it that is increasingly interesting to me is the dimension of the input. I started to think even back at Arizona State University about the fact that if you're not flying politicians to Washington, D.C., as we do here in the U.S., you can actually change the system a lot more rapidly. And you can change the system based on measurements that might not necessarily be the sort of measurement that we've been making for hundreds of years of people going to the polls. What if instead we were to measure stress level for the population. And that were the basis for a greater or lesser probability for a representative passing any given bill into law. That then leads to the thought that we can look at various biometrics, we can look at stress level in terms of stress hormones, cortisol, for instance, we can measure cortisol in everybody all the time. And the system could constantly be in flux where the probabilities are constantly shifting. And if we can do this for humans, we could also, since many animals also have hormonal systems where cortisol is a stress hormone, we could potentially enfranchise animals in decision-making processes. And we can look at plants as well, where phytohormones such as ethylene serve a similar function. So basically there's the possibility in a system as I'm envisioning in this thought experiment, which is to say that I'm not advocating. I am not saying that this is what we need to do or even what we should do. I'm saying that this is what we need to be thinking about and that it can lead us in directions that we might otherwise not explore. That this leads to this possibility of world governance in a way that I haven't heard anybody talking about it. And I think really we need to be thinking about it at least where humans have been in charge for a long time. And we're making a mess of things in terms of 
the state of the environment and all of the ways in which that then relates to not only the well-being of other species, mass extinction and so forth, but also our own well-being in terms of food and water security, in terms of warfare, in terms of all the ways in which these systems are deeply interrelated. And it makes sense. We're all here to, to cite Buckminster Fuller. We're all on spaceship Earth together. So it seems to me that enfranchising other species in some way, at some level, makes a lot of sense. We really need to think through how we can take into account these other perspectives. And this is a way in which potentially you might do this. And it's obviously, it's a long shot, to say the least. Here, we would need to pass a constitutional amendment, and that's highly unlikely. But there are as an example of how what might on one level seem like an absurdist proposition and potentially a very bad idea to take all the species on the planet and all of the ways in which they're sensing the environment and the ways in which they're processing it and this incredible sensory network that is all life on earth and this incredible wisdom that is the wisdom of how the world understands itself through all the beings living on the planet and all the living systems, that while that may seem like it really would be very valuable in terms of being the means by which the world governs itself, there are all sorts of ways in which you might imagine that could go awry and we could end up in a, in a world that could be um, red in tooth and claw to use the term often used in, in reference to, to, to Darwinism. There are all sorts of ways in which it could go wrong. And yet it seems to me that there is some, something here that we need to pay attention to at least. And that as a starting point, we can ask who gets to decide and how those decisions get made. So that's where the public philosophy comes into play. But we can also, in practical terms, start to allow for this reasoning to operate in the world through observation of other species. So instead of enfranchising other species legally, we can start out with a means by which we're polling, for instance, the plants in our neighborhood by observing them phenologically, observing are the plants coming into flower earlier or later in the year that is a way in which to observe stress level and to see over, over the years a change in stress level that can then inform how people vote. And so part of what I'm working on right now at the University of Southern California in the Annenberg School is a system which will enlist people as citizen pollsters out in the city initially in Los Angeles, to make these observations, effectively to have a gallop, starting with plants, which are the majority, more than 80% of the biomass by some measures on our planet, by, by bringing people out into their environment and having them pull the plants around them by observing phenologically over time, how plants are responding in terms of their stress level to the conditions that are largely driven by politics. And then by processing that, by analyzing it, to be able to make political 
endorsements to be able to to encourage people to vote in a way that is based on the perspective of these other species, or at least informed by that perspective. And in the process, to bring as many people into this pro- in, into, into the polling in a way that it leads to this deeper relationship and situating ourselves more within the world as a whole, within the, the natural world that we have alienated ourselves from and that we really need to reintegrate with, this becomes a way in which to do that. So effectively, world governance seems to me to be a to be shorthand for the greatest problem underlying all problems i think which is our alienation from the world around us and that through the idea of world governance is really being the world governing itself that that might be a means of facilitating this reintegration. Jonathan, I think that's a fascinating idea. And one of the thoughts I've been having while listening to that is I can feel my kind of techno-optimist gland kind of beating slightly, which almost it has, in the current discourse, seems a bit like a kind of bad, a bad word to say, that techno-optimism aspect. Um, but it feels like with that idea... It's, it's technology through nature as opposed to technology acting on nature. But I wondered, firstly, if you could just talk on the kind of techno-optimism thing and where that stands with the kind of the, the negativity around that. But also what one theme that has been coming through this conversation in terms of asking questions that lead to more questions. One of the issues when we think about solve, even the, the term solving global problems is that it suggests an answer, whereas, as we've discussed, your questions are promoting more questions. And I wondered if you could speak to that in terms of how do we solve, in inverted commas, an issue with inquisitive, curious questions? To me, techno-optimism is simply a flavor of optimism more generally that in its own right, we need to be cautious about, but not to reject out of hand. I take optimism as a matter of Pascal's wager, but not wagering on whether there's a God. And that never really made any sense to me because if if there is, and that God is omniscient, that God is going to be able to see through the cynicism of making the wager that you should believe, because if you don't, it's eternal damnation. Whereas if you do, it's just a matter of going to church on Sunday. I think, however, it does work as a an operating principle in the case of optimism, where There are so many reasons not to be optimistic. And yet if we are not, then why would we act? And at least if we act in the best interest that we can possibly imagine, and we try to bring about some vision of a better world, 
at least we are making the effort and therefore we're not contributing to the gloom and doom. Where techno-optimism becomes problematic to me is there's a dogma. There is a way in which we think of technology as being inherent to that optimism. And we define technology in very particular ways, which is that we think of technology as being our technologies right here, right now. Whereas I think that if we look at technology more broadly, and we recognize the Paleolithic hand axe as a technology as well, that perhaps then we realize that any interaction whatsoever that we have in and with our environment is in some way mediated through or entails technologies. And in that broader sense, it seems to me that we're already mired in technology in that broad sense of the word. That technology is certainly not going to go away. So therefore, in my belief that we need to be optimistic, I believe that we need to be optimistic in relation to our technologies as far as how our technologies manifest in the world. And so when we look at this question of global governance, part of what interests me is a matter of considering what science tells us where we, again, don't get in the trap that we assume that what science knows is known in some absolute way, but also where we don't get into the trap of nihilism, of saying that science tells us nothing at all, but somewhere in the middle to at least take what science has to give and what technology can afford and putting all that together to try to understand to the best of our ability what is happening in the world and to figure out it, an interface or interfaces that integrate what is understood contingently through means, methods, and apparatus that are available right now to put all of that to work toward a, a goal or toward a purpose that we keep clear about and continue also to question that may not actually be served by any or all of those systems and that we may decide that we want to drop one system and we want to call up another, that we're constantly in this process of considering which of the many technologies and also epistemologically, what systems we're, we're enlisting, to what extent they are fit 
to the purpose and to what extent that purpose actually is a purpose that we believe in. So that is the process of questioning at some meta level. And I think that experimental philosophy, I think that this process of asking what if, I think that the, the act of getting outside of ourselves to the best of our ability and seeing our, our systems from an unfamiliar perspective, which is part of, I think, this process of making counterfactuals, of engaging in experimental philosophy, that that becomes a way in which to keep it honest. So I am trying to be as honest with myself as possible to try to encourage this honesty that we can have with each other to the greatest extent that I, that I can, and simply to to take what seems like it might be meaningful in the moment and to pursue that meaning as rigorously as, and as tenaciously as possible, knowing that it is not going to lead to a certitude, but is going to lead to a better position for myself. And I think for all of us, ideally at least, to be able to be more sensitized to and more responsive to and therefore more, more responsible toward the system that we're all a part of. I'd like to nuance a little bit the techno-utopianism that we might associate with Fuller because he, he did say himself that humanity is developing all of the right technology for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, and it strikes me that, you know, Spaceship Earth, as you said, was an incredibly powerful metaphor, uh, an incredibly powerful kind of mythic uh, frame for Fuller to, to, to launch this ambitious agenda. But it, it also reflected the zeitgeist of the time, sort of the, the height of modernity. Young people had uh, an enormous sort of optimism, we might say. Whereas now, you know, often young people feel as if, uh, in, in the words of, of Mark Fisher, that the future is, is cancelled, that today nothing is possible, yet everything is still expected. So how we actually sort of recapture that sense of, no, the, the future is open-ended. It's not, it's not determined. And of course, to, you know, you're working on another project called Museum of Future History, which explicitly seeks to decolonize the future. Uh, and so I, I wonder to, you know, how, how do we make that concrete? So how do we, how do we, given that this podcast is also called Imperfect Utopias, how do we actually begin to reorientate the zeitgeist towards an open-ended, pluralistic understanding of what the future could be? How do we prevent colonialization by these sorts of old static paradigms and assumptions? I think that when we start to look at how those paradigms from the past affect the technologies of today, that it gives us a self-awareness, at least, about how our technologies, when they are projected into the future, and especially when our technological aspirations, our predictions, our forecasts are presented 
with great certitude that we can recognize the peril that, in fact, we're working with deeply imperfect information. And we are also impacting those who have no say in the decisions that we make, that we can have all of that in mind when we make the decisions that we do. The risk is that this is paralyzing, that we that we're afraid to make any decision whatsoever because of the fact that our information is incomplete and because of the fact that our decisions will affect those who are not yet born. And that is a decision that we could make that would be catastrophic. And it would be equally decisive in a way that would very clearly be catastrophic. So I think that what we need to do is we need to be informed in the way that I've suggested and to to build possible worlds in multiple and to live in those worlds in ways that there can be some export from those worlds into the world in which we live of what we learn through the act of living together in those alternative realities simultaneously with our being fully alive in in the world around us. And that it is this act of contingency and the humility that underlies that recognition, which can allow us to act responsibly without acting decisively. And there are certainly there are tools, there are methods that I think can help to keep us honest. And one that I've been working on is a camera that has an exposure time of a thousand years, taking a picture that those in the far future will be able to look at and to see the decisions that we've made. And yet we're able to envision people in the far future seeing that picture and we can change that picture. So to build this sort of awareness in the moment that is an awareness in relation to deep time, to me, that seems like a way in which to encourage the sort of feedback loops that allow for a responsible way of being in the world that is aware of the incredible power that we have, the leverage that we have, and also the limitations that come into play in terms of, of, of how that gets used well in the moment. And it really needs to be from moment to moment that we are evaluating that. Interesting. And I know that you've got to rush off. And so I get to ask the last question, which has become my kind of go-to question at the end of every podcast as the youngest member of the team. You know, 
we we are like in a world mired by you know climate crisis and you know scary things. What would your advice be to to young people everywhere and and people that want to have that better future, and maybe they are a bit scared of of which path to take. You know, like like Sylvia Plath, they're in the fig tree and they see all the futures and they just they don't know which one to take. What advice do you have for for us and for the younger generation moving forward? I think that we all need to be together in this process of asking questions and that there is courage to be found through the awareness that others are doing so as well and that there is fortitude in the in the, the, the community to which you belong as one of the many who are actively asking questions and asking questions in a way that what answers you receive further inform the questions that, that you can ask. So I guess that it's not advice that I'm giving, but an invitation. That is to say that I think we all are in it together and we need to do our best to work accordingly through this non-hierarchical approach, non-hierarchical in terms of humans, in terms of all species, this approach to looking and learning and, and asking questions together uh, that I think can lead not only to a certain sort of fortitude, but also to a certain sort of, of um, confidence in the fact that it is not, it, that we're never going to be at a level of certainty that is going to dominate our decisions and our world in ways that could put it further out of balance. That we can gain a greater sense of balance by entering into this together as a mode of being in the world as a mode of engaging in, interacting in, being a part of this, this dynamic homeostasis that is how the planet has been able to support life for all this time. I think that the act of asking questions, the act of being curious is a way in which to enter into that dynamic homeostasis with integrity and that when we do so, the world can work to a greater extent than any other, any other way that I can imagine. And that we can have confidence that we are at least all in it together in terms of what we make of it and what the world makes of us. Mm. 
I think that's a beautiful note to end on, Jonathan. Thank you so much uh, for this conversation. Uh, thank you for joining us today to enter into some dynamic homeostasis. <laughs> and uh, we're going to take a lot away from this and we, we look forward to staying in touch with you. Likewise, I really appreciate the great questions and the opportunity to have this conversation. So I look forward to more. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.